It is Friday, the 1st of March 2019. My name is Jeremy Medlin and welcome to episode 29 of the Stock Market Movers podcast. Just a quick reminder that nothing that I say today should be considered financial advice. And if you're looking for financial advice, I recommend that you speak to an authorised financial advisor. There were plenty of NZX company updates during the week and some really interesting news. There was Michael Hill, Tourism Holdings, Genesis Energy, Wrightsons, Scales, Gentrack, Convita, Vector, Vista, Delegates, Freightways, Chorus, and, and probably a bunch of other companies that I missed. However, I'm not going to talk about any of that today. This is because Warren Buffett's annual letter to shareholders was released last weekend. It is something that I look forward to each year, and that is what we're going to talk about today. The letter is always brilliantly written, and while it is generally focused and relates mostly to Berkshire Hathaway, the company, there are always some great investment gems to take away. It is no different this year. If you go to berkshirehathaway.com, you will find the most recent letter. You can go read it there for free. What I will say is that if you haven't gone to berkshirehathaway.com before, you should go. It is not necessarily what you'd expect from a company that has a capitalization of $500 billion and 380,000 employees. Although it's worth noting that a lot of their subsidiaries have big and proper websites. While we're here, I will put the link in the show notes, but there's a fantastic book that you should all read and read again. It is called The Essays of Warren Buffett Lessons for Corporate America. I think that I've mentioned it in the past. Basically, a chap called Lawrence Cunningham put all of Buffett's letters to shareholders over the years together and, and ordered them by topic rather than date. So if you're, a, if you're a new investor, some of the stuff might go over your head, but you should read it anyway because I guarantee that you will take something away from it. And then you should reread it again in a couple of years because you'll learn new things. It's a book that I think I've read three times now. Anyway, in this episode, I'm going to talk about the Berkshire letter. I'm going to focus on what I see as the investment takeaways as opposed to the unique Berkshire-related material. So I'm going to skip past the earnings and a lot of the Berkshire data, although there will no doubt be some overlap. I'll read parts of the letter and then attempt to interpret them or at least interpret what it means for me. Okay, here goes. So I'm reading from page one of the letter. Wide swings in our quarterly gap earnings will inevitably continue. That is because our huge equity portfolio valued at nearly $173 billion at the end of the 2018. We experienced several days with a profit or loss of more than $4 billion. Now, I've taken this quote out of context from the letter and I've edited areas out of it to emphasize the areas that I want to. So I'm not referring to the point that Buffett was making here. The first thing is you can you imagine that your stock portfolio being up up or down one day by, by four billion dollars? And it is like gaining or losing a contact energy each day. I, I imagine that for most listeners a big move in their portfolio might be between five hundred dollars or or a grand. And I think this has been one of the keys to Buffett's success is his ability to scale up. Because once upon a time, a $500 move would have been significant for him. And there have been many great and successful investors in the past, people that have done well out of the stock market, but there has never been anyone that has been able to scale up as well as Warren Buffett. And that is that—that that is still able to achieve good investment returns with, with capital. Typically what happens when when managers or or funds get big is that they either close the fund or they give money back to shareholders through dividends or they realize that they're rich and, and, and get out and retire. But Buffett has been has kept consistent and the ability to adapt his approach and manage more capital. And no doubt a, a four billion move in his 
stock portfolio, it, it means the same to him as, as a $500 move back in, back in the day. So the, the piece, piece of advice that I would take away from this is to think in terms of percentages as opposed to a nominal figure. At the end of the day, a $4 billion move in, in Buffett's stock portfolio is, is just under 2%. So when it comes to your to your stock portfolio, think in terms of percentages, and then over time as you add more money, you, you'll find it easier to scale up. Okay, so there are often themes running through Berkshire reports. This year, Buffett chose to use the analogy to trees. He encouraged investors to focus on the forest and to forget the trees, to quote the report, the report directly. Investors who evaluate Berkshire sometimes obsess on the details of our many and diverse businesses, our economic trees, so to speak. Analysis of that type can be mind-numbing, given that we own a vast array of specimens ranging from twigs to redwoods. A few of our trees are diseased and unlikely to be around a decade from now. Many others, though, are destined to grow in size and beauty. Fortunately, it's not necessary to evaluate each tree individually to make a rough estimate of Berkshire's intrinsic value. Continuing the tree theme, Buffett goes on to describe five groves or areas that Berkshire that investors should focus on when assessing and coming up with an intrinsic value of the company. And while this part of the report specifically relates to Berkshire, I think there is a reasonable investment takeaway from it. And I guess that is that is what to focus on what's important. When I talk to people about investing companies, which is what you do in the stock market, you buy parts of companies, most people don't talk like this. They might, for example, talk about what is happening with Donald Trump and the political situation in the US or the Labour government in New Zealand or climate change or whatever the big risk at the time is that they see and it always changes. Or they'll do the opposite and they'll focus on minute details specifically related to the company that have little relevance over the long term. One example that you see quite often is a huge price movement after a company misses by a small percentage point on their expected margins or revenue target. If you're a long-term investor, these movements are often insane. So you either get this over-focus on the macro aspect that is unrelated to a company or a micro-focus on an irrelevant detail. I would argue that this is often a focus on the trees as, a, as opposed to the forest or the bigger picture. On page four of the letter, Buffett describes the type of, types of investments that they look for. He says, let me remind you of our prime goal in the deployment of your capital. I love how he just says your capital there. It's just a subtle reminder that he's investing your money as a shareholder. To buy ably managed business, businesses in whole or part that possess favourable and durable economic characteristics. We also need to make these purchases at sensible prices. So it is quite simple. He is looking to buy whole businesses or parts of businesses, i.e. on the stock market, that have durable competitive advantages and great management managements. It's pretty simple. And then he is looking to, to, to buy them at a reasonable price. Continuing on page... and. You know that's essentially what you should look to do as as an investor as well. I mean, he's, he's described Berkshire's approach, which which should be no different. I mean, you want to buy businesses with great managements that have long term competitive advantages, and you want to pay a, a reasonable price for them. It's it's you know the the philosophy is is quite simple. Continuing on page four, Buffett has a dig at one of his favourite topics, that is EBITDA. When discussing the earnings of his subsidiaries, he said he defines earnings as 
and I'm, and I'm quoting directly here, what remains after all income taxes, interest payments, managerial compensation, whether it's cash or stock-based, restructuring expenses, depreciation, amortization, and home office overhead. That that brand of earnings is far cry from what from that frequently touted by Wall Street bankers and corporate CEOs. Too often their presentations feature adjusted EBITDA, a measure that redefines earnings to exclude a variety of all too real costs. For example, managements sometimes assert that their company's stock-based compensation shouldn't be counted as an expense. He puts in brackets, what else could it be? A gift from shareholders? And restructuring expenses, well, Maybe last year's exact rearrangement won't occur, but restructurings of one sort uh, or another are common in business. Berkshire has gone down that road dozens of times, and our shareholders have always borne the cost of doing so. So, and I'm still reading from the report here. Abraham Lincoln once posed the question, if you call a dog's tail a leg, how many legs does it have? And then he answered his own query. Four, because calling a tail a leg doesn't make it one. Abe would have felt lonely on Wall Street. On page five of the report, Buffett talks about dividends that Berkshire receives from its stock market holdings. He wrote, Our investees paid us dividends of $3.8 billion last year, a sum that will increase in 2019. Can you imagine receiving, <laughs> just as an aside, can you imagine receiving $3.8 billion in, in dividends? He goes on, Far more important, though, important than dividends, though, are the huge earnings that are annually retained by these companies. In a table, he pointed out his largest stock holdings, and one of the stocks in the table is obviously Apple, that's their largest stock holding. They they paid out $745 million in dividends to, to Berkshire, and that Berkshire's proportion of the company's retained earnings was $2.5 billion. Buffett argues that the retained earnings are of enormous value to us. Over the years, earnings retained by investees, viewed as a group, have eventually delivered capital gains to Berkshire that total more than $1 for each dollar that these companies reinvested for us. This is a a very Buffett tenant and a very Buffett quote. If a company is retaining a dollar of earnings for reinvestment, then you'd expect that that dollar to be worth more for you and more than a dollar in the future. I mean, that's what investment is, is the outlay of capital now to, to get more back in the future. If this is not the case, then the company should send that dollar back to you in the form of a dividend or a repurchase. I've spoken a lot about stock repurchases in the past and indicated that in general I'm a fan of them, and I'm reading directly from the report now. All of our major holdings enjoy excellent economics, and most use a portion of their retained earnings to repurchase shares. We very much like that. If Charlie and I think an investee's stock is underpriced, we, re- we rejoice when management employs some of the earnings to increase Berkshire's ownership percentage. So when a company uses its cash to buy shares from the market and cancels them, your ownership percentage as a remaining shareholder goes up. Buffett uses the example in the report of the American Express ownership increasing from 12.6% to 17.9% due to stock repurchases, and that percentage will keep on going up in the future. And the math of this is simple. Just to use a simple example, if if a company has 10 shares outstanding and you own one of them, then you own 10% of the company. If they buy back five of those shares, then there are now five shares outstanding. You still own one share, but instead of owning 10% of the company, you now own 20%. Buffett points out in the letter that buying back shares only makes sense if the shares are undervalued. He criticised CEOs that buy back shares indiscriminately. He also notes that it is 
likely that over time Berkshire will be a significant repurchaser of its shares. Transactions that will take place at prices above book value but below our estimate of intrinsic value. He spends a lot of time talking about stock repurchases in this report. Stock repurchases happen more in the United States than in New Zealand for a couple of reasons, at least in my opinion. The first is that there is more liquidity in the stock market. This means that companies can step in and easily repurchase shares. So it's difficult to do in, in the New Zealand market where you don't have much liquidity in, many of the, in, in the companies, whereas a company repurchasing the shares in that case would have a pretty big impact on the stock price where in a lot of, a lot of cases it's just absorbed in the United States. It is also more tax efficient. When dividends are paid in the in the US, there are no imputation credits like there are in New Zealand and people have to pay their own tax on 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 those dividends. So it makes sense, therefore, that dollars are returned to shareholders in the form of share repurchases because there's, it's a more tax-efficient method. And I'm quoting Buffett directly here. For continuing shareholders, the advantage is obvious. If the market prices are departing partners' interest, say, at 90 cents on the dollar, continuing shareholders reap an increase in the per-share intrinsic value with every repurchase by the company. Obviously, repurchases should be price-sensitive. Blindly buying an overpriced stock is value-destructive, a fact lost on many promotional or ever-optimistic CEOs. Buffett also uses the letter to have a crack at another one of his favourite topics, that is Wall Street expectations. He writes... Over the years, Charlie and I have seen all sorts of bad corporate behaviour, both accounting and operational, induced by the, the desire of management to meet Wall Street expectations. What starts as an innocent fudge in order not to disappoint the street, say, trade loading at quarter end, turning a blind eye to rising insurance losses, or drawing down a cookie, char reserve, cookie, cookie jar reserve, can become the first step towards full-fledged fraud. Playing with the numbers just this once may well be the CEO's intent, it's seldom the end result. And if it's okay for the boss just to cheat a little, it's easy for sub subordinates to rationalise similar behaviour. And you would have seen this in your own work, no doubt, when you've got a, a boss that cuts corners or, or, or whatever it might be. When when employees see a boss cutting corners, they're more likely to themselves. We all would, would have seen this at some point in our careers. At Berkshire, and he continues, at Berkshire, our audience is neither analysts nor commentators. Charlie and I are working for for our shareholder partners. The numbers that flow up to us will be the ones we send to you, send on to you. I love this sort of stuff. It's the dream situation for shareholders, in my view. And being a dream, it is also rare, and it's it's rare the the situation at Berkshire Hathaway. Buffett's Holding and wealth in Berkshire Hathaway have been accumulated by spending his own money acquiring shares. He hasn't founded the company and suddenly got rich, and he hasn't been awarded stock options. He bought his holdings one share at a time, like the rest of us, and you know, albeit at a much lower price. But you know, he he bought and got control of Berkshire Hathaway that one share at a time and this means his interests are truly aligned with shareholders and interestingly the senior management at Berkshire Hathaway you think Ajit Jain or, or, or the rest of them Todd Coombs or whoever it might be they also are owners in Berkshire Hathaway and they've also achieved that position by purchasing shares he continues so Berkshire will forever remain a financial fortress 
and managing, I will make expenses, expensive mistakes of commission. So by there, he means expensive mistakes in terms of stuff he does that, is, that, that might not be right. For example, he admitted in an interview I saw recently that they pay too much for Kraft Heinz as an example. And we'll miss, also miss many opportunities. An example of this that he cited in the past has been the, how he had enough knowledge and ability to invest in Google but didn't. Some of which should have been obvious to me, and Google's that example. At times, our stock will tumble as investors flee from equities, but I'll never get short, never get caught short of cash. And I think this is the most one of the most underrated quotes in the report. He is saying that he will make mistakes and that shares will fall from time to time, but he will never risk take a risk that will affect the solvency of the company. And, and this should be implied, and the, the lesson here is that this should be implied to your own investing as well. When, when I talk to people that leverage currency movements by 100 or 400 to 1 through CFDs, as an example, or, you know, take another loan to, to buy some Bitcoin or something like that, it literally sends chills by down my spine and and I don't think there's any real reason if you're a long-term investor to take these sorts of risks. So why do it? Buffett continues his discussion on risk and, and debt on page 10 of the report. He says, we use debt sparingly. Many managers, it should be noted, will disagree with this policy, arguing that significant debt juices the returns for equity owners, and these more venture, venturesome CEOs will be right most of the time. At rare and unpredictable interviews, however, credit vanishes and debt becomes financially fatal. A Russian roulette equation, usually win and occasionally die, may make financial sense for someone who gets a piece of the company's upside but does not get a share of its downside. And that's what I, I said before in, in terms of options and things like that that are awarded to managers. Nothing wrong with it, but in Buffett's situation, he's invested his whole life and invested all his money into Berkshire Hathaway, and he's he's as, as pegged to the upside as he is to the downside. So that's why he doesn't like to take these sorts of risks. He continues... But that strategy will be madness for Berkshire. Rational people don't risk what they have and need for what they don't have and don't need. And that's one of his famous quotes as well that he's repeated there. So far, far be it from me to be in the mind of Warren Buffett, but reading these sorts of quotes and other ones from him, I've taken the view that the first thing he thinks about when investing at Berkshire is the worst-case worst, worst case scenario or the cat risk. And maybe that's from his experience as an, an insurance underwriter or, or, or whatever it might be. But I think that if, if he can imagine some sort of catastrophe risk, then he just passes on the investment. If he can see a situation where... I guess some sort of reasonable risk that something might go wrong. He just moves on to the next one. And it's been quoted on many occasions that he says his first rule of investment is not to lose money and the second rule is not to forget the first rule. And I've talked, of course, people confuse that sometimes when he's, when he when he talks when he says that about a quotational loss, so when the stock goes down, and what he actually means is a, is a realised loss. And I honestly think that he practices this. Now, he, he won't get it all right and, and look at the... Look at the news of of Kraft Heinz during the week, but I I honestly believe that he that he does all he can to minimise minimise the risks. Now, time for my favourite quote of the whole letter. Our level of equity capital is a different story. Berkshire's three hundred and forty nine billion is unmatched in corporate America. By retaining all earnings for a very long time. 
and allowing compound interest to work its magic. We have amassed funds that have enabled us to purchase and develop the valuable groves earlier described. Had we, had we instead followed a 100% payout policy, that is dividend payout policy or share repurchase policy, we would still be working with the 22 million with which we began fiscal 1965. And this is why he's the greatest investment investor ever. If anyone or ever questions this, I recommend that you read them this quote. So they had $22 million in equity in 1965, and they've built this up to $349 billion, and it's a performance that will never be replicated. You know, they, they can't replicate it going forward, obviously, due to the law of large numbers. The, the future of returns of Berkshire will not, will not be the same as this astonishing feat. And it goes back to what I said at the start of the episode, that he has always found the way of scaling up his investments. And, you know, back in 1965, Actually, prior to that, when he was running his investment partnership, he eventually got too big for that, so rolled the investment partnership into aggressively buying control of Berkshire Hathaway, the the, the textile company, and you know then continuing with, continuing with his risk arbitrage and and cigar butt investing, and then getting too big for that, and and buying Seas Candy, and then just the ability to scale up, I think, is is unique in the investing world. And I think this quote also shows that sometimes it's not in the interest of, of shareholders to pay a dividend. And that that is almost a, a crime to say that in New Zealand where we've got so many good dividend-paying stocks. But if, if the management can find a better use for money, then they should reinvest it. And in the case of Berkshire, this has been extremely successful and, and you know, the, the best store investments ever. And... I guess the trouble is with a lot of companies, Berkshires and Warren Buffett have always been able to find more things to invest in, and it sounds like that might be coming to an end now because they're going to be. They said that Buffett said he's going to be repurchasing a lot more shares in the future. But if if you can, if the company has has reinvestment opportunities, then you want them to be re- reinvesting the money. If you think A Two Milk, for example, a, a couple of years ago when they started making a, a lot of cash. Obviously, it would have been insane for them to pay all those cash out, all that cash out as as dividends straight away when they have so many more reinvestment opportunities out there, and you know maybe in the case of Contact Energy, for example, the opposite is true, and they have less reinvestment opportunities, so they should pay it all out in dividends. Unfortunately, there are not that many Warren Buffetts around there to to reinvest it, and if you do stumble across someone with any sort of resemblance of an ability of an ability of, of Warren Buffett, then you know you'd want them to reinvest your money as well. So he continues, Charlie and I do not view the hundred and seventy two point eight billion detailed above as a collection of ticker symbols. So now he's I've picked this from another part of the report, and the hundred and seventy two billion is referring to the this the equity portfolio, so the stock market portfolio within that three hundred forty nine billion. And interestingly enough, in, in nineteen sixty five, the twenty two million that was invested was virtually all in stocks. So that twenty two million in stocks has essentially grown to one hundred seventy two billion, and the remainder is in the um, operational businesses. So I'll read that again. Charlie and I do not view the 172.8 billion detailed above as a collection of ticker symbols. So detailed above is referring to the, in, in the report, there's a list of stocks that they own. A financial dalliance to be terminated because of downgrades by the street 
expected Federal Reserve actions, possible political developments, forecast by economists, economists or whatever else. I love... I love this passage of the letter. It goes back to what I said at the start of the episode about seeing the forest from the trees. It continues. What we see in our holdings, rather, is an assembly of companies that we partly own and that on a weighted basis are earning about 20% on the net tangible equity capital required to run their businesses. These companies also earn their profits without employing excessive levels of debt. So Buffett is, is always big on this return on, on capital employed metric. So that is, I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing a bit here, but he's essentially saying the assets of the business minus the debt, you got the equity and the return on that shareholder equity. So he always prefers businesses with high returns on equity and ideally companies that can reinvest those returns into more equity and, and maintain the same rate of return. That's exactly what he's looking for. Um, one thing that, an, an, an example of that is, is you know, we mentioned it again that we discussed last week is A2 Milk. They've been able to return a, earn a tremendous return on the equity. So continuing, returns of that order by large, established and understandable businesses are remarkable under any circumstances. They are truly mind-blowing when compared against the return that many investors have accepted on the bonds on bonds over the last decade. 3% or less on a 30-year US Treasury bonds, for example. So here he makes a comparison to interest rates. It, he he did a two hour interview with CNBC after this report came out that you can with Becky Quick who's a who 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 we always seem to get interviews with she's a great interviewer, um, and you can find it on YouTube so I would recommend watching it and he argues there that if interest rates stay this low over a long period of time then he believes that it will look back retrospectively and see that stocks are cheap at the moment. If you felt the interest rates were going to significantly rise then they may not look so cheap. Anyway, so on occasion, a ridiculously high purchase price for a given stock will cause a splendid business to become a poor investment, if not permanently, at least for a painfully long period. An example of this in, in New Zealand, classic example, was when Zero was listed on the NZX, I think it was 2014, when it got up to something like 69 times sales and it wasn't making a profit. So he had a good company that was significantly overvalued by the market. So if you if you bought that, then you'd have, you'd have to wait a significantly long time to at least get some sort of return on your investment. And it's, it's a good point because he's saying that if you overpay for a great business and you stand a better... It, he is saying that you stand a better chance of, of that business catching up to the investment. So at least if you get a good business, then it's it, great businesses endure. So at least over time, you, you're going to get some sort of return from an investment, which is why he, he always says it's better to over overpay for a great company than, than underpay for a poor company. So that, that, that point there is, is what he's getting to in the report. And that's about all I have time for this week. There's a lot more information in the report at berkshirehathaway.com. I, 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 if I could give you three pieces of homework this week if you haven't done it already. The first would be to jump online to berkshirehathaway.com and read Buffett's annual report. The second would be to watch his interview with Becky Quick on CNBC. And the third would be to download or or buy a copy of the um, essays of Warren Buffett. And they are mentioned at the start of the book. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. You can buy it on there if you like. Um, so I'd like to apologise as well. I've had a bit of a, 
a, a cold this week and I've <laughs> had to re- record this epi- parts of this episode two or three times because of my, my sniffing and my coughing. So apologies if, if that's affected the the sound quality. As I look now at the news, it's actually Thursday night. It's I'm, I'm recording this this part of the episode the night before and I, I see that Donald Trump, Donald Trump and, and King Jong in, in North Korea have had a breakdown in the nuclear talks and the US stock market futures are down and that just goes back to my point at the start of the episode about being, seeing the, the forest from the trees and these sorts of political events, especially in a in the hyper news environment that we live in these days are going to happen almost weekly and it's it's very easy to get distracted and blinded by them over time so looks like the markets will be down tonight but of course this sort of thing is 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 an opportunity probably for us if we're long-term investors to ignore those sorts of fluctuations in the market and you know obviously you don't buy buy the market just because of of one day when the stock's down, but it's it's really easy to be freaked out by these sorts of events and and do irrational things. And at the end of the day, how much does that impact Spark, for example? So, or 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 Convita or or whatever company you're investing in. So anyway, many thanks again for for listening into the podcast. As a reminder again that nothing that I said today should be considered as financial advice. If you're looking to find out more about the podcast, go to www.stockmarketmovers.co.nz or find us and give it a like by searching on Facebook. Make sure also that you share it with your friends and one thing you can do is go to stockmarketmovers.co.nz and sign up for the weekly notifications via email as well. If you want to email me, it's jeremy at stockmarketmovers.co.nz. Feel free to send through any questions that you have. I love answering them on the podcast from time to time. Once again, my name is Jeremy Medlin, and this has been episode 29 of the Stock Market Movers podcast for Friday the 1st of March 2019, and I'll see you all again next week.